Welcome to Deacon's Pod. I'm Deacon Dennis. Say hello to my co-conspirators, Paulus Affiliate Deacons, Deacon Drew and Deacon Tom. Hello, this is Deacon Drew. Hello, this is Deacon Tom. Good afternoon. Hi. Good afternoon. Hey, Joe, how are good you? Good to see you. I'm good. How good, are you, Tom? Good. How's your summer going? My summer's going pretty good, pretty well. Mm-hmm. I'm doing the things that I wanted to do, trying to get some relaxation in, not totally achieving that, but not really overworking either. What well, about there you? there you go. Enjoying the day. Good. We're up here with our grandkids, two of our grandchildren, yeah, having a ball. Two young boys. Yeah. Three barking dogs. Where are you, it's Tom? great. Huh? I'm in you're up where? Plata, Maryland, outside of D.C. Oh, you're in Maryland. Yeah. As opposed to Florida. That would be the up-in part for That's the right. listeners who Florida. are saying, what's he talking about? Which is getting pretty toasty, from what I understand. Everything's getting toasty. Get, getting very warm down there. Yeah. Dennis, yeah. Where, where are you, Dennis? I'm in uh, the land of steady habits up here in, in the state of Connecticut. A little okay. lake here with a little, have a little cottage and doing running Grampy's Day Camp for the grandchildren. So that's mostly what I'm doing. Okay, that's great. Yeah, that's no, great. it's great. It's great. Too. I got grandkids that are getting so old that they they got better things to do. And then I got little ones yeah. that still think this is great. So it's a limited shelf life. So you enjoy it while you can. The thing about being a grandparent is you can just be with the children and love them. And then when they really need something, you just give them right back. To oh, them. yeah. No, I tell my daughters all the time, like, you didn't let us get away with that. And I would say, mm-hmm. I never liked you. That's what I would tell them. <laughs> <laughs> I like these kids. And then once I spin them up, I say, no, I am the good cop. My days of being the bad cop are over. You're the bad cop. That's right. Cop. You're off duty. That's it. Yeah. I'm, I'm just unconditional positive regard here. That's all my job is. You got to crack the whip. How do you like it? And the kids. How do you and like the it? The kids get it. They the, get it. The kids get oh, no, it. They too. Get the it. kids really get it. My, no, my the, daughters uh, laugh when I say stuff like that. They know it's all a joke. But even the grandkids get it. The other day, my grandson was with me and. I said, let's take a selfie here. And he jumps up in my lap and because he knows what a selfie is. They know what that is before they can talk. And we, he, we take a couple of selfies and smile. And now he realized he's done what I've asked. So he turns to me and says, do I have a present? <laughs> <laughs> Looking for a reward. Tom, yeah. that's your life. I tell you. What can you <laughs> what do can for you me do? today? Today. Yeah. Otherwise, it wouldn't be sitting on your lap. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Transactional. Well, you do have some candy for the kids, right? You do have a stash of some kind of good stuff with raisins and almonds, chocolate-covered almonds. Are you kidding me? The good health food. Man is down at the dollar store loading up (laughs) shopping bags full full of of, sugar. Yeah. Candy. Again, their parents can give them fruit. Sure. I'll say this about my granddaughters. They love fruit. My granddaughters love fruit, so that's easy. They love fruit, but they also like presents. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) but they, they're they great. They're wonderful. They're also just wonderful. My granddaughters, my grandson, love them so much. Yeah. Good for you. Yes, indeed. That's Especially a good thing. The, it's, a great, it's a great blessing. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. They grow so quickly. I had a, one of the chaplains I worked with, a great chaplain, good person. She was a UCC minister. She was the Protestant chaplain at the women's prison. Worked with her for many years, Laurie Etter, Reverend Laurie Etter. And she used to, she said to me one day, having grandchildren is like having puppies that can talk. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was brilliant. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly what it's like. Yeah. That's really good. So who we got for a guest today? We have Kevin Ahern. Ooh. Who is a theologian, a professor of religious studies at Manhattan College. And he's a heavy hitter, but he's a young man. He's got a young family. He's heavily involved in the ministry, well, the parish, not the ministry so much, but the parish. Yep. Maybe the ministry, too. We'll find out when we talk to yeah. him. But he has a lot of good perspectives on what makes a good parish and what makes a good church and what makes a good Catholic. Yeah, so and it's be- very, one of the things about Kevin, and because he is involved from the academic to the hands-on level, he's really well integrated. And as you say, he's a very young man, and that's why I just love I just it's just nice seeing someone who's that young and that involved. And Kevin is really Catholic. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Because people people make up their own meanings to words. People ask if you're religious. That means are you a crazy person, conservative? It depends on all what they think that means. It's got nothing to do with what you think it means. But anyways, the Catholic thing. What Kevin does, Kevin puts a and it's in his life. It's in 
the courses he teaches. It's in the books he writes. What's very Catholic is the both and. It's not an either or. So, for example, Catholic theology is very big on body and soul. It's you're a package, you know, grace and nature, that kind of thing. And a lot of various Christian groups, they focus on one, they focus on the other. But to really understand the interplay of both is a real Catholic sensibility. It's a very realistic thing. We are not angels. Don't talk to me about living my life in such a way that my human needs are not taken care of, et cetera, et cetera. So his books that I've read, especially Structures of Grace, it's right there in that title. We think of grace as this amorphous thing that God gives you or whatever, but he's talking about structures, channels of grace that, you know, in the human world, grace can either be impeded by structures, by the way we organize our lives, or it can be allowed to flow freely by the way we organize our life, our church, our world, whatever. And he really has that. And that is just so Catholic. That, that is just like the essence. And a lot of Catholics, when you talk to them, are not really Catholic. They, their views are not willing to say, well, the body isn't important, or the soul isn't important, or grace, or nature. They pick a side, and that's the right. real tell there. So he is really very Kevin is, holistic. Is, is it, he is as comfortable with the Eucharist as he is with social action. Yeah. Which really tells you who he is. Right. And that's the way it's supposed uh, to be, by the way. It's not, well, that's his quirk. Exactly. That's supposed exactly. to be the deal. That's, if you're not getting that connection, then you're not right. getting the point. Well, that whole right. free f- flowing of grace is, I think Kevin sees it as the working of the Holy Spirit, which I think brings this all together. It's, it's right. Um, exactly. It's, Unifies yeah, us. Brings it, keeps it, motivates us. Yeah. It gives us the ability to do that social action, having been fed by the Eucharist. Well, now that we've explained Kevin, why don't we let Kevin explain himself? Okay, yeah. Good idea. We didn't scratch the surface on Kevin. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're right. We didn't scratch the surface. He's a great guy. That was an appetizer you know, for the listeners. Let's go to Kevin Ahern. All right, here we go. Well, today we have with us a guest that is going to be a lot of fun and a very enlightening His name is Kevin Ahern. He is an associate professor at Manhattan College. He was the program director of labor studies and the program director of peace studies, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes. Dr. Ahern and his wife, Beth Glauber, lived together with their three children in Ossining, New York. He received his doctor of philosophy at Boston College in 2013. He went to Fordham University before that. I'm starting to see some kind of a theme here among Jesuit education and Kevin himself. Ruin for life, they say. Ruin for life, (laughs) Jesuit education. Well, here's the thing. Before we leave his resume, one thing I found very interesting, from 2012 to 2018, he was on the board of directors and board secretary of American Media, which is America Magazine. So if I understand how corporate corporations work... That makes you the boss or made you the boss at that time of Father Jim Martin, correct? I don't know about that. He baptized my daughter, so I'm very happy. Well, let's remind our listeners before somebody takes this wrong. Let's remind our listeners, Father Jim was a guest on the podcast, and and he will be in the future again. But welcome to our podcast, Dr. Ahern. It's really nice to have you here. So you're also a theological ethicist and a public theologian. Tell us, and at least tell me, and tell our listeners what it means to be a public theologian. That's a great question. I think the idea of a theology can sometimes seem intimidating to people, and sometimes theologians themselves are more comfortable in the library than they might be in the church or in the public square. So a question that that many of us have had is, who is our audience as theologians? Who do we write about theology? Where do we learn about theology? And there's a school of theology that we describe as public theology, and that's trying to do things like this, trying to get out, trying to bridge the academic world of faith with faith exploration with the public space. But it's a doorway that goes two ways. I learn a lot about my understanding of God from my engagement in the world and my engagement in the public square. What liberation theology calls the first order theology, those questions that grandmother is asking, the questions that the father is asking, the questions that people are asking on the streets, and then vice versa. I try to take academic big ideas and to translate them into the public space. So I think public theology is really trying to 
bring what's going on in the world into the academic space, into the classrooms, into books, but then take what's in the books and put it out in the public. And is that related <laughs> to being a theological ethicist? Oh, we love we love these terms, us academics, even if I try to get away from them. Yeah, I think it's much related because the way I look at the what's going on in the world and what's going on in the church and the rich tradition, beautiful tradition of the Catholic tradition is through the lens of social ethics, theological ethics. So what's happening, especially to people who are most marginalized, economically, socially, politically, ecclesially even. Okay. Well, that kind of moves me to ask you the question that we ask of all of our guests. And we normally ask it a little bit later in the podcast, but I think it would make sense to ask it now. Let's say that you have encountered metaphorically a person standing in the door of the church, and they're either on their way out mm -hmm. because they are angry or disgusted or bored, or they're thinking of coming in, but they're somewhat frightened and anxious and don't know what to do. Might be different answers for each of those people, but what would you say to that person? Well, I love that you asked this question, and I think that this is a big theme for your podcast is just very inspiring to me that because not enough people are asking these questions, not enough people are attending to those, the people at the back of the church. And then in one podcast you talk about, I think, what do you say to a woman who's thinking about leaving, right? I think the first response is to say, you are church, whether you're on either side of that door at some level, right? To affirm their identity as being part of the church. Too often we, we ascribe church as a building, right? So I asked my students in many of my classes at the beginning of the semester, what is church? Word association, right? Do a Google image search in your head of what church is, Catholic church is. And oftentimes you're talking about buildings. Maybe they'll talk about popes or other priests or bishops. They rarely talk about church as the people of God or church as a community. The second thing is I think I would try to hear and listen to them, get their story, right? Why are you even there in the narthex or the doorway? right? Why? What's happened? Where have you come from? Where are you going? And try to find time to, to talk with them. I think there are a lot of folks, and I know in the Northeast of the United States, and regionally, this is different across the United States. And my work in organizing lay people globally has seen the differences worldwide. But there are a lot of people in different parts of the world who feel like they're at the margins of the church. And that is a pastoral space that I think we need to really take seriously. In the 1940s, there were two French priests that were working with the Young Christian Worker Movement, and they wrote a book called Is France Mission Country? And this started this whole worker priest movement. The mission terrain, I think someone said this on the podcast, is shifting. What would it look like to start a mission organization here, right? And I think maybe this is the Paulist mission in some level. What does it look like to... So my answer to that person in a long-winded academic way <laughs> would be to affirm their identity as Christian, no matter where they are in their faith journey. Because being a Christian is about, be, about the people of God, and they are a part of that. If Please. I can just interject for a second, see what you think about this. I really, I didn't know what a public theologian was because I'm old. I knew what a theologian was. <laughs> Basically, what I'm getting from that is you are not a hothouse plant. You're like, we're going to go out and address the real world, take the questions, take the hit, and not be like the stuff that Tom did in Providence College, right, Tom? That's right. How many <laughs> angels can dance on the head of a pit? Yeah, like like this. So is France a mission country was a very seminal thing. It provoked, as you said, the, the work of priest movement, which was quashed. And my theological take on that is that the diaconate is the revenge of the Holy Spirit in the, oh, no worker priest? Oh, really? Well, how about we have a whole bunch of ordained guys that are going to work with you every day, and you're going to like it. You're going to actually sign off on it. So I see this as the Holy Spirit will out in the end, despite our, stu our own proclivity of stupidities, whatever we're throwing away. I just wonder, what, what do you think about that, since you brought up that the seminal document in the worker priest movement? Oh, Which was quite effective, by the way, at the time. It was not ineffective. That's not why right. it was quashed. Right. And it's, it wasn't squashed fully, right? There are still elements of it that were allowed to continue and that, that have th thrived. I lived in France for four years as president of a global lay movement called the International Movement of Catholic Students which was a global, is a global network, one of the oldest lay-led lay movements in the church in this model of specialized Catholic action. 
went and visited some of the worker priests who were living in these big apartment complexes with migrants from everywhere country, especially where France formally colonized. And they were living among and with the people. And they, that was just beautiful to see. One guy was working as a paramedic and I was just so impressed by their mission. But I think you're right. I think that way that you describe the role of the diaconate makes a heck of a lot of sense to me. It's the theology of the diaconate. Too often, I think people see that they think of the diaconate as only a ministry of the altar and don't really understand that the altar extends out beyond the church. Right. Mm. And I think that's, I'm so glad that you all are reminding us of that vocation. I did not know, indulge me here, that there were still worker priests. I thought it was entirely quashed. How many worker priests are still there? There's a congregation at Mission de France that still is there, and there are some other models that are out there. There are many priests around the world who I think live out that model, whether formally or informally. But the congregation Mission de France, Society of Apostolic Life, is still there. But these priests that founded the worker priest movement were chaplains, and it's not a coincidence of this movement, the Young Christian Worker Movement which along with the student movement and some other movements that I've been involved in, their model of mission is that evangelization should happen in the apostolate of like young workers should evangelize other young workers, that students should evangelize other students, professionals, other professionals, engineers, other engineers. So there's a whole ecosystem of networks of Catholic movements out there that haven't really ever took taken off in the Anglo-Saxon world. So you'll see them in Anglo and Francophone Canada historically, but not in English-speaking Canada. And these movements would try to inspire lay people to live out the baptismal vocation in the workplace. So I think it's wonderful to see De- this point, Deacon, that you were mentioning of deacons working side by side with you. But I, I think all of maybe a deeper challenge is how do we get those all the baptized to live out their baptismal vocation? Oh, but yeah, that's that's I don't the know, point. what's the role of the deacon for that. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe you guys, you guys, I'm sure. Well, the role of the deacon is to be a model and to say to people, I do this. Oh, wait, why are you going to the prison, Deacon Tom? I go because I'm baptized. Oh, I thought it was because you were a deacon. No, my job as a deacon is to get you to go. And to realize what your baptism is. We don't own service ministry. Okay, this that's a deacon's job, which is what people want to do with it, not just hierarchy. Lay people, unfortunately, a lot of people are looking for a way to get off the hook. Well, that's father's job. That's sister's job. That's so a it's not the salary. Job. I thought it was the salary that you Oh, owe. yeah, the big money we're making. <laughs> we're just raking it in. We can't we don't talk about that. But anyway, no, that is the role. Exactly what you're alluding to is to promote the vocation of all the baptized, that we're the coach of service. No, this is not optional. This is not for the hippies and the liberals, and that's their thing, and the crazy people. This is part of baptism. you got to serve somebody somewhere, somehow, or you're not responding to the program. And it's got nothing to do with me being ordained. My ordination is not why I serve. It's baptism. So that is the point of the diaconate, according to the theology that I've read on it. But I, I think it's just fascinating, all these things. We're pretty knowledgeable. I don't know these groups you're referring to. And just Well, let me say this. Maybe this is a good point to, say, to point out that Dr. Ahern has actually written a book called Structures of Grace, which, if, it, correct me if I'm wrong, doctor, I think it's, it's published by Orbis Books, by the way. I think this is the book that was published as a result of your dissertation for your doctorate. Somewhat linked, but a separate book. Yeah, but my in the... Writing my dissertation was looking at the work of Catholic organizations and doing advocacy in the United Nations system. So okay. I spent quite a lot of time actually doing that on behalf of these student movements and related movements. But from that, I, had, I developed this book, which looks at how Catholic communities and Catholic movements and so, what we call social movements, but organizations, we know what these are, right? right. From the Knights of Columbus uh, to, to the student movements, the, even to, a Cong- to the polis, I would say, it's a social movement, a Catholic social movement. How is God at work in the communities, right? How do we see what we are involved in theologically, not just practically, not just prag- pragmatically, but how do we take a theological lens to how God is at work in what we're doing? And to celebrate where we see God, but also to maybe search out other ways where God is not as, as evident. So what does discernment look like? What is the selective? What, how do we do collective, not just strategic planning, right? We often like strategic planning in this country for organizations. And sometimes you might tack on a mass or a prayer if it's a Catholic group. Can we really think, are we a community that's reflecting God? 
Are we a community that is trying to respond to where the Holy Spirit is? And, and to the woman at the door, I think communities are the way to, to help people to feel connected. It's not just the, sometimes our parishes seem so abstract and so impersonal. How do we, and we need that personal one-on-one pastoral care, but we also need collective spaces. So people involved are involved in the church in various collective ways. I, I know, so I find hope in that. Yes, I was bringing the book up because you spent some time in making it very clear and frankly, very enlightening about how these social movements or these groups or whatever you want to call them, communities, mediate between the church itself and the people and really take the what the church tells us to do and put it into action on the ground. And it's somewhat fascinating. And one of the things I'd like to talk about if we get to it is how you talk about how they are challenged generally, since they're going to be working with other groups and other lay people to maintain the identity of being Catholic. Yeah. Your description sounded, and maybe you can help a lot of us here, remarkably close to what I'm hearing about the synod thing, synodality. Uh, Could you maybe elucidate that? Because this is... Yeah, this is what we're all wrestling with, even to understand it. Can you talk a little bit about from your experience in all of this that, because it sounded like the themes you were talking about sounded like synodality. So could you give us a little something on that? Is it, are you saying that or is it like? Yeah, no, another? absolutely. I'm saying that. And one of the connections here in diving into the fancy theological word of pneumatology, which is very scary to a lot of people, right? We, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, right? Someone, the part of the Trinity we often forget to talk about, right? Grace are the gifts, is about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The Catholic tradition has a beautiful long history of theology about grace and pneumatology and spirit, but sometimes that's forgotten. Sometimes we, it's easier to talk about Christ in the gospel because that's just so clear and Christ's message is so inviting to us in the Eucharist. But I think the Holy Spirit is frightening to people because it's not often as clear cut. And it takes a lot of work to create spaces to listen to the Spirit, whether in your own personal life as something like Ignatian discernment, Ignatian Jesuit spirituality would spend a lot of time on, or the, this notion of synodality, which Pope Francis is really inviting us to in a profound way. I, I certainly would have had to have rewritten my dissertation in a different way if it came after Pope Francis because of this whole notion of synodality and the work of the Spirit. Francis has this beautiful document I, that I find many people haven't read, and I share it with my students, and my students are always moved by this, Gaudate and Exaltate. I don't know if any of you have seen this document on holiness. You're right. And it's all about grace and the Holy Spirit, how grace and the Holy Spirit are involved, work at us, but you need time to listen. And Francis lays out two different enemies of holiness. Do you guys remember this? The yeah. one, one was Gnosticism. A, right. And what was the other one? Do you remember? Pelag- I, Pelagianism. Pelagianism, right. It's two sins, right? That, yeah. that Gnosticism, where you think you have all the answers, and I have a lot of colleagues, academic colleagues, who think the answer to life is all in the head, right? Abstract ideas, Pope Francis says. And of course, the danger is you think you're right, so if you think you're absolutely right, then everyone else must be absolutely wrong, right? right? Then the right. other, and Pelagian So they, so Twitter. Twitter, exactly. Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Twitter. There you right. go. We've, our culture, our economy, as, <laughs> as, then as you said, right, that's the opposite of synodality, which is about journeying together. It's about listening to each other, right? We have right. economic models of our social media that thrive on descent on people having this kind of Gnostic kind of visions, right? Right. The other risk is Pelagianism. And these things cut across left, right. And I think that Francis is really interesting in this, right? You can be conservative or liberal, whatever these labels mean, whatever the heck they mean, and be Gnostic or be Pelagian. Or you think Pelagianism is where you deny the necessity of the grace, deny the necessity of the Holy Spirit. Yep. Gotta do it yourself, your own bootstraps. Do-it-yourself right. tools. And you're right. Fr- Francis did a wonderful job, I thought, in that book of talking about both sides and talking about everybody is subject to these sins if they take too far where they're at. Exactly. exactly. You know, I, I love that part of the book. It's also just a good book to sit down and pray with. Absolutely. I try to do that often. Doctor, I was struck, first of all, by your title, Structures of Grace, because again, the idea of grace is like the Holy Spirit, pneumatology is like this amorphous thing. And it's like, we can't really get a handle on it. 
and it's a lot of work, and, and well, we just ignore it. Why structures of grace? Can you say a word or two about that? Because it sounds counterintuitive, like grace is this floaty thing where God zaps you with something and puts you in his good books, whatever. But we really, but the idea that grace can be structures or that's appropriate, unpack that a little bit before we really get into the Yeah, leads. absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, so the Catholic theology has been awakened to the importance of social structures for the last several decades, coming out of insights from Latin America, but elsewhere, looking at what John Paul II and others have described as structures of sin right? These elements, these communities, these ways of human relationships that it's not saying that there's a soul in a structure. These structures don't reflect where we're called to be. They don't reflect what God intends the world to be. And we know it when you see it, right? Like that Supreme Court definition. You know it when you see it sometimes, what's a, what structural sin is. But there hasn't been a corresponding development about how God and God's grace can be at work in community. We know that God is at work in communities. You walk into a parish, even sometimes I walk into a parishes and you can just, even if no one's there, you can just feel that this place is holy. It's like you go to some of these holy, like Lords or some of these places, there's something beautiful happening. There's something of God at work in the communities. Communities of women religious talk about charism, right? The Franciscan charism. Well, that's embodied in a structure in a community and a network over time that grows. And so I think it's important for us to recognize that the good work of, to avoid Pelagianism, that the good work that, for example, the Paulist fathers and, and associates do, the Paulist movement does, is not just how amazing XYZ person is or how amazing the Paulists are, wonderful, yay, 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 us. It's that if we do good work, it's that God is at work in us. If we do good work as Jesuit Refugee Service, a group that I have a lot of real admiration for, the, all these people that are served by JRS programs around the world and some of the worst refugee camps on the planet. If we do good work, it's because God is at work there, right? And if we can recognize God there, we can celebrate it. We can better listen in a synodal spirit, right, to where God is calling us. But we could also maybe encourage, evangelize in a way, right? It's about naming the presence of God at work in our communities. Pentecost was a collective experience, the church herself recognizes that it's a structure of grace. Doesn't mean that everything the church does is perfect, as we know, right? But we, when we say we believe in the four marks of the church, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic, we believe that God is at work in the community, not just in the individuals. So this is just to let me do my high school teacher yeah. thing of putting the hay down where the goats can get at it. This reminds me, what you're saying then reminds me of Peter Morin's statement, which was the one of the people with Dorothy Day who founded the Catholic Worker Movement, something along the lines of to create a world where it is easier to be good. Exactly. The, the, is that the idea of the structures? Like yes. We set it up so that you, it's easier to be good than be evil, and you're not going to get dinged for doing the right thing or whatever. So that. So if we have a structure of sin, if we have situations that are oppressive, Right. The 1971 Synod of Bishops calls, says that evangel that the work, work for justice, right, is a type of evangelization, links evangelization of the work for justice. If we are working for justice, right, you can't do that individually alone. You have to have communities, right? Now, my office right here is surrounded by 38 boxes. You can't see that I just, that I'm in the process of setting up an office here at Manhattan College for Dorothy Day's canonization. This is weird things you do as a public theologian is driving my new family minivan to the Archdiocesan Center, which in New York, they call it 1011. It's a building that has just a number attached to it. It's either met with fear or excitement and pulled up the family minivan to the loading dock and loaded 40 boxes of files and some relics or potential items from Dorothy's life into my car because we, I, co I get to co-chair the, the honor of co-chairing the cause, the guild, the Dorothy Day Guild, which is her effort for her canonization. Dorothy knew, like Peter, that if you're going to want to change the situation for the guys on the street, you need a community to do that. You can do things individually, of course, and we're all called to do that, right? But we also have to collectively, it's, you've, it's a lot easier to make soup for a group of people when you have a line of people who are cutting up the onions right. together. Right. 
So, and then if you start asking the questions, right, like the great bishop in Brazil, Don Helder Camero, he had this famous quote where he said, when I feed the poor, they call me a saint. But when I ask why they're poor, they call me a communist, right? But the next step is, well, you have to, once you identify the root causes, you have to then go and do something about it. So the lay movements I come out of, these movements of specialized Catholic action, young Christian workers, international movement of Catholic students, these movements have methodologies where we've called them the C-Judge Act. Maybe you've been have referred to this phrase before, right? Where in small groups, this was invented by young women workers in Belgium in the middle of the Industrial Revolution, right? This is now officially the methodology of Catholic social teaching. And it was developed by young, uneducated working women. Right. Imagine in the 1920s, you're a young worker, young woman working in the factory in Belgium. That's not going to be a good life. They met in small groups. They started to develop this methodology that became known as See, Judge, Act. You look at the experience, how God is at work and not at work in your experience. You look at where you're called, what's the deeper issue, and then you do something about it. But to do that, you have to do that collectively. So I think if we are serious about the people at the edges of the church, we have to be serious about organizing structures and communities to, to welcome them and to serve them. And so I think it, it, this conversation about transforming the world can also come back to transforming the church. So I, I'd put that mirror back on us. Well, how do we bring this into the existing family parish structures that are <laughs> mostly in maintenance mode? It's, a t- it's such a tough one. And I know on this podcast, maybe it was you, Deacon Tom, who said, walk with your feet. Was that you? That if you're not finding that sustenance in the parish, that you go to a different one. And, I'll be, and some of us are very privileged to be able to drive to, and that's not always the case in all these places. My wife and I, we have, between us, we have five degrees in theology, right? She is a social worker, has a degree in pastoral ministry. We are not welcome in the geographic parishes where we're at, right? We're not welcome. Right. I can call various bishops, but the local pastors don't want us. Right. It's yeah. so, the maintenance mode. Right. There's no communal sense there. So we drive a few parishes away and to mixed experiences. It almost feels like to me that there are spaces in the country and other parts of the world that are ecclesial deserts. So, you know, this phrase of food desert, the food desert. Right. Yeah. Right? yeah. Where there's, there's no grocery food. store you can get to around right. here. So you can find food, but it's not nutritious, it's not sustaining, it's not life-giving. I think we have something similar where you have these structures, especially in the northeast of the country, where so we have all these buildings and these massive institutions that we've lost that sense of community. When COVID happened and the lockdown happened, right, we had, I had, had the little kids. What a terrible experience it was for so many people, the elderly who couldn't see their families, like my parents or us with little kids. And various stories and people who had to work. The parishes, where were they for a lot of people, right? They were close. Not even an email, not even a, a lot of places did nothing. And they fought putting it online, like even to show the mass you're doing anyway. It's just like unbelievable, the resistance. Absolutely. Are we going back to the structures of grace and then maybe for the parish level, small group communities? Is that what we're talking so what about? We, yeah. So what my wife and I did at the beginning of the pandemic is we re-resurrected a prayer group, a small faith group that we had when we lived in Boston. And at that point, the members of the group were all over the country. And we met every Thursday night throughout the lockdown. And we continue to meet now every other week. And so we meet virtually by Zoom. We did Easter liturgy together. We did Holy Thursday liturgies together, all by Zoom in the early days of the right. lockdown. Right, right, but right. we're together in communities. One of my more recent books that I edited with the young man, Chris Milano, or not young, my age, a guy, Chris Milano, who's in the formation to be a Paulist, Paulist seminarian. He and I edited a book called God's Quad, where we looked at the importance of small faith communities for college students worldwide. So Chris followed me when I was in Paris. He spent four years after I did in the student movement. And now he's now he's in Washington in the Paulist formation. But we looked at the, we knew how powerful small groups were. And so we believe that, that the solution to the future is to figure out how to create small groups or to that where people can be connected. I'm reminded in the pastoral center for the Archdiocese of Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia, they have a mission statement for the Archdiocese of Peninsular Malaysia that says, we 
came to our mission is to be a community of communities or something like that. Can our parishes become communities of communities? Well, it depends on the pastor, whether he can, he has the ability to even comprehend what you're saying, because the structure of the parishes is, if he's, he's an absolute monarch. And doesn't, as uh, I'm yeah, sure, we, you have more degrees than most of these pastors have, and they don't even want you in there, which may not be coincidental. But my point is, you almost need to go to what you're talking about in many cases, because the answer is clearly no. We're not even going to be a community, not going to put any time in that. Never mind a community of communities, and you got this guy orchestrating all it. So I do this, you come, we're doing this model. So. I would think it's more likely that it's your interpretation that you're going to have to get lay people to organize and to practice the faith and break open the word and do some service and be there for each other. But of course, that's so challenging. And you three know this as well. And I think one of the gifts the diaconate brings, at least to me as a married father, are more clerics out there that understand what it means to have little kids, right? Or grandchildren or know what it's like. And so many priests, I think the ch challenging to just don't get what it's like to have kids, right? And so we had a terrible experience during the pandemic where one we needed to get a signature from our pastor and it was a new pastor. And because this was three months into the pandemic, and he wouldn't sign a paper for us because we didn't go to mass. And there was still the exemption. Right. The, yeah. The, the lockdown. The lockdown. It was three months in. It was, and he humiliated us publicly on the street corner to the point that my, ch my son said, were we kicked out of the church, daddy? Yeah. Now, now that guy lasted as pastor in a parish for five, six months. Right? right. I had grown up going to that parish many times. Right. So I think the clerical structure that we have that you're pointing to of clericalism that Pope Francis points out all the time, we, it goes both ways because you, yes, you have the clerics themselves, but you also have lay people who support this, who say, absolutely. It's not my job. That's right. My That's job. the benefit. That's the benefit. I'm off the hook. This is father's job. So I'm willing to let you do whatever I'm passive. We think of that. If you have Vatican II at all, you think of that as well, and probably a lot of our listeners do too, certainly the people in the Paulist network that, that listen to this podcast. We think of that as a bug, but to a lot of people, that's a feature. I can sit here and be passive and you're going to get me into heaven and I'm done here. But that's, isn't not, that, that's to a large degree the success of the teachings of the past 50 years when you pray and obey. You have the devotional church mm -hmm, and exactly. that's what we did. And the more you did, it, that whole idea of if you do 50 rosaries, that's right. better than 49 rosaries, 50 mass is better. And this Ritual is going to get us better seats. And, and so is, we're passive, and Father had his back to us, and life was good because he took care of everything. And all we had to do is put the envelope in. And, and it's radically why, changed. This is why people are so puzzled as to why we're losing people and trying to figure out different ways. But let me ask what I think it is a related question, but it's not too far afield from where we are. Based on what you know and based on what you've seen, Kevin, and based on where you've been around the world on all these movements, is it your expectation that the Synod process will help change the mindset of the parishes on a local level? It's all about listening, right? The Synod process. And, we had, and in fact, wasn't it really supposed to start two years ago by these small groups meeting first and then reporting up to the parish level and the parish reporting to the diocese? Do you think there's some hope in this process to change the mindset of the clericalism out there? I think there's a lot of hope. And as a Christian, we always have to be people of hope, right? Which is so hard to do, right? Even in here in New York, the kids' camps were canceled today because of the smoke. It's one thing after another. Right. But so it's, it's sometimes hard to have hope, but communities are the way that we find hope, right? We have to, you have to find hope with, with others. And the notion of synodality is about journeying together. That's what it means, right? A collective journey. So yes, it's about listening to each other and listening especially to where God is at work in our midst, but it's also about participating. So I had an article recently where I talked about, I looked at the role of Catholic student movements as models of participatory ecclesiology. So how do we participate in this. And if you think of the, even the mass parts, not just the, the gospels, certainly, but if you think of the mass parts, it's all about 
active participation and a response. Right. So right. that that person at the edge of the door, right, to the church, I sometimes I wonder, okay, you, yes, maybe at the edge of the church building, but maybe there's more of church on the outside. Not, and this, not to say that the sacraments are not absolutely important, but right, mass is about dismissal, about mission into the world. Right. That's the line they give us. They let us dismiss the people. That's what deacons get to do. Now go do that out there. Go home and do what we just talked about in here. Yeah. Yeah, You you get paid for that little part, right? We don't get paid for nothing. We're lucky if if we get a Christian burial. This is all for the love of the baby Jesus, Doc. That's all we're doing it for. Yeah, but those of us who are somewhat subversive, though, can take that opportunity. And I know you two must have done this, but there have been times when I say, go in peace and get past the parking lot with that peace. (laughs) Yeah, that was the last sermon in the middle of June I did was basically explaining, and I don't remember what the even reading was, but anyways, the message was, was a go and do likewise thing. It was like, this here, what we're doing in the building, this is the halftime meeting, and we're the coaches up here, but you're the team. The team wins the game, and the game's out there. So, and that's what I did, is put it in perspective. Doctor, I wanted to ask you one other thought on another way to address the people in the door for options. So, we talked about parachopping and we don't want you. And I don't, the other guy, I know Tom, I assume Drew has had that, even as deacons, pastors. Oh, no, I don't need any help. Oh, really? <laughs> really? I'm Because yeah. I'm looking at it like, oh, okay, Father. So I've had to move up and move around parishes just because, oh, okay. But anyway, you were talking about the problems of the clericalism that shuts down and makes difficult change in the existing parishes. And we, then we talked about the lay solution of getting together and taking the initiative and creating small communities and stuff, and the difficulty there is with getting that going. There is a middle position I've been interested in, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on it, between those two is these associate programs with re- existing religious communities that I have often said to people who are in the situation you described, if I can't find this, I can't find that. And I've said to them, well, do you know the sisters, whatever it is, Mercy, Charity, whoever, like over there? Oh, yes. Oh, they're wonderful. Well, you can hang out with them. They will take you on retreat. They will let you work at their soup kitchen. They will. And they're like, really? Yeah, go over there. There's people, there's a whole group of lay people that do that and make that the basis. So it's neither you got to start from scratch and nor is it the blockage in the clerical hierarchical system in a lot of parishes. What, do you have any thoughts on that? A lot ground? of th- yeah, a lot of thought to many witnesses of women religious in this country. And I think in many ways, the United States church has been so shaped by religious congregations of men and women that some of the work that in other countries that lay movements have, that the spirit is called lay movements to take up, have been taken up by religious congregations here. Of course, that time is changing for various reasons. Various associate programs associated with religious congregations connected to a few of them. And they do amazing work. And even when my son, who loves to play guitar, when he was even very little before COVID, we would go frequently to a retirement community of nuns and he would do, I don't know, baby deacon work of singing to them and making these elderly women happy who don't get to see little kids, the ones in their retire- their nursing facility. But I think the challenge with associate programs to some degree, and it depends on which congregation, is that the center of decision-making remains appropriately so in the vowed members. Oftentimes, right? Some associate programs are much more autonomous or have much more impact. But I think we lack the imagination to, and we've been struggling with this for decades, what does it mean to be a fully lay adult Christian, right? I think that's a challenge for a lot of us to figure that out. And it's made much more difficult by the fact that parents are, what one priest friend of mine said to me, the number of young families dropped when they moved soccer to Sunday morning, right? Mm -hmm. Well, we know that's challenging. How do we be creative in that? But I think you got to listen to the needs of family. Look, I oftentimes I walk into a church with my kids and my wife and my kids are the youngest ones in the building and then followed by my wife, right? Yeah. And that's awkward for people. We, and then if there are groups that are set up, sometimes they're set up and I don't want to say they're weird, but some groups that are set up in parishes that are there are have a devotion to elements of the Catholicism that don't do much for me, but they could for other people. And God bless. Them, and let's right. say that. But 
if parishes don't have groups that would match the experiences of young families, yeah. I think we're missing something. Of course, you can connect with a religious congregation. But I worry about the neighbors that I have down the street who are marginally Catholic who I don't know what's going to happen to them when their kids finish First Communion. They're not going to think much. Are they going to come back? Now, they're better than some houses, two houses down, where they don't even have their kids in First Communion classes, right? So evangelization is a big deal. I think, again, I think synodality can help to move it, but it's going to be sparse because not all parishes and not all dioceses in the United States have embraced this process so far. And I can only imagine when the results come out, it will be a further firestorm. Because any decision that's rendered or movement or changing any of the spots is going to just be move us away from any more unity. It's going to get the, or if there's uh, a non-decision, even if it's yeah, even if the it's done, the expectations happened, are already there. Changed. Yeah, the yeah, expectations be, are already there. Yeah, yeah, and there are going to yeah. be, I think, some people who might feel disappointed. But the importance is that the synods, the synod is the meeting, but synodality is the process. Right. So we have to not confuse the meeting with the process. And the, Pope Francis wants the process to become the way of doing church. I think there's a real call of the Holy Spirit there. And that's coming out of Vatican II. And it's not at the council. It's not very well publicized. But lay groups and lay leaders were part of the writing of many of the documents of Vatican II. Many of people, your listeners might know Sister Natalie and her work in the Vatican and the Synodal Office, but there was a laywoman named Rosemary Goldie who came out of the movements I work with. And she went around the world before and during the council getting the input of lay people that was then brought into through these international lay movements into the council, right? So it's not totally, but the cha- the trick is going to be for us and your podcast probably has a role in this and you as deacons and all of us who are listening to this gosh, if you're bored and we're listening to this, or you have church nerds like us, is how do we take what the synod is going to do in the next two years and translate it back to the lives of people in the pews and people on our streets who don't go into the pews anymore? Well, I think that's what I was trying to say before. The process, I think, is more important for the parishes than the actual answer at the end of the road coming from the Vatican because it's teaching us how to get together and to listen to each other, if we're doing it, if we're doing it. So many parishes, I think, have not done it, and some have done it better than others. But maybe that's one of the ways to get started. But all of this, I just want to say to the listener, the book Structures of Grace is not exactly everything we've talked about, but it certainly will help you start to understand what we're talking about if somehow we lost you. Although I think this has been a fascinating conversation. No, I think it's been good. Let me, Doctor, let me ask you this. Since you deal with undergraduates and all that, and you're, you're in touch with what's going on in the present generation, are any of them in the threshold? How do you read the interest? Now, of course, you're teaching theology, so I'm assuming that your students, are any of them required? Is, this, is there still a required course in theology that you might have some of the people that aren't really nerds that would... So Manhattan College is a Catholic college in New York, not in in the Bronx, founded by the De La Salle Christian Brothers. And all students have to take three religious studies classes. The first is an intro to world religions. The second is something related to Catholicism. And the third is something related to religion in the world beyond North America. And the students, I would say, our student body, I would say you could classify as one third would identify as practicing Catholic. Another third would identify as former Catholics or Catholic in name only. And then another third would be non-Catholic. And I've often found a lot of joy that some of my Muslim students have taken much more seriously Catholic social teaching and Catholic theology when I've taught that than some of the kids that have gone to Catholic education their whole lives. And so it's a joy to teach in those spaces. But I'll tell you one, one brief story that just gives me a lot of hope. A student was teaching a class on Dorothy Day and students were going down to the Catholic worker movement, volunteering in the soup kitchen or coming up with me to do plant some vegetables at the Peter Moran farm. And one student after going to the soup kitchen, she came into my office in tears. And I said, oh my God, what happened? I sending a student out. And this was a first generation college student, her mother, single mother, she, told, she started to tell me the story how growing up she was in a Catholic parish and the youth minister sexually harassed her. And I've asked her if I could tell the story and she said yes. And that she went away from the church. She couldn't find God in the church anymore after that terrible experience. 
but she went to this Catholic worker movement to this Catholic worker soup kitchen. And she realized that she thought she was the poorest person in her world. And she didn't realize that there could be people unhoused or people who didn't have food for that day. Her world, her perspective shifted. And she said, she wrote in a reflection to me and recently began with this in an article for the Vatican newspaper Observatory Romano that she said something, I'll never forget this to the day I'll die. Something inside of me that was broken was healed. Something inside of me that was broken was healed. Now, I don't know if she started going back to church or not, but she, her relationship with Catholicism changed as she says it. Because she had this encounter with people who were doing this type of works, living the works of mercy, or trying to take what Jesus taught seriously. And what happened when she was telling me that in my office, I felt like there was a sacramental element in her telling me that in my office. I said a a prayer right after I, I felt that was sacred. Dr. Ahern, this has been a wonderful conversation. It's enlightening. It's it's brought me closer to the job I have to do as a deacon. And I really thank you for your time spent with us today. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you all. Special thanks to El Jefe Paul Snatchko and our editor, David Dalt. The Deacon's Pod is powered by the Paulus Fathers. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts and, of course, at our own website, www.deaconspod.com. That's D-E-A-C-O-N-S with an S, Deacons, plural, pod, all one word, dot com. And of course, we'd love to hear your comments at our email address, which is deaconspod, again, with an S, deacons, at paulist.org. That's P-A-U-L-I-S-T dot org. Love to hear from you. That's our offering. We thank you for being with us. On behalf of our colleagues at the Missionary Society of St. Paul the Apostle, We wish you a future brighter than any past. Till next time.